If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with a new season and a new case. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he didn't commit. More than 30 years later, is it still possible to get to the truth? And who gets to tell it? Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. Jenna here, and I'm excited to share with you one of my favorite podcasts, which recently came back for its sixth season, The Uncertain Hour. The Uncertain Hour is an award-winning podcast from Marketplace, where host Chrissy Clark dives into the obscure policies and forgotten histories that explain who gets ahead in the U.S. and who gets left behind. And if that doesn't sound fascinating enough, the series was featured on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. This season, Chrissy investigates the for-profit companies that run many of America's welfare offices and how they're cashing in on work requirements for welfare recipients. Listen to The Uncertain Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Will we fight for some or will we fight for all of our people? Let's just name a couple hard truths. First, the intersection of black rights and the rights of the LGBTQIA, trans and gender nonconforming people continues to be rough. It's a huge understatement. Even as we demand equality at the top of our lungs, we consistently fail to extend our advocacy to protect some of our most vulnerable among us. Gabrielle Union's impassioned comments during the NAACP Image Awards went viral. Her condemnation of some in the Black community who refused to include LGBTQIA people in the fight for equality hit a sensitive nerve that has long been quietly exposed. Welcome to After Broad and Market from the WNET Group's Chasing the Dream and LWC Studios. I'm Jenna Flanagan, the lead reporter, producer, and host. As a cis Black woman, I heard the urgency in Union's words, the resistance among some Black Americans to include LGBTQIA rights as part of the larger civil rights struggle is often stiff and fierce. An accepted figurative line not to be spoken of or ever crossed. Reluctantly, I also passively accepted the unspoken rule. But why? Even more complicated were the gendered roles for queer women and men. The Whitney Houston documentary, Can I Be Me?, touches on the open hostility around Whitney's perceived queerness. In it, her friend Allison Samuels framed it this way. Female homosexuality is absolutely never spoken about in the Black community. You hear about Black men, but never about Black women. According to the Pew Research Center, six in ten Black adults say fighting racism is more important than other inequalities. Yet, at the same time, Almost half of Black adults say discrimination against LGBTQIA people is a very big problem.
As a journalist, I've learned that everyone's lives are shaped and defined by the systems built within our society, communities, and in-groups. For better or for worse, we either find ways to live within those systems or boldly step outside of them to define who we are for ourselves. For many Black Americans, one of the most pervasive social systems is white supremacy. Scholars and historians agree that white supremacy is the foundational structure America was built upon with anti-Blackness as its founding principle. Its twin social pillar is patriarchy. Together, these two systems form a racial hierarchy that puts cisgendered straight white men at the top and black women at the bottom. White supremacy and patriarchy certainly weren't the only two systems that provided the backdrop against the way Sakia Gunn lived her life. But they help form a clearer picture as to why she died, how she died, and society's indifference to it. My name is Angela Jones. I am a professor of sociology and department chair at Farmingdale State College. I knew for this story, I needed someone with a broad yet nuanced understanding of human behavior, patterns, social interaction, and how they can define different cultures within a society. I would say that my work primarily focuses on how marginalized people not only survive and protest, but also how people, especially marginalized people, form communities and find ways to thrive despite all of the adversity they face. Dr. Jones says despite their research and activism in the LGBTQIA community, even in Queens, New York, they didn't hear about Zakia's story until two years after her death a point they hold up as an example they believe of whose lives merit headlines and whose do not. I often, again, want to emphasize that this was not at all just about her and her friends being out lesbians, right? This had everything to do with gender presentation and it had everything to do with cissexism and transphobia. And I realize that that is not, you know, trans language that um, that they use to, you know, um, represent their identities. But nonetheless, right, that I would imagine that for these men, some of their actions were a response, not just to this pronouncement, right, of being a lesbian, but very much so also about being gender nonconforming and about being AGs and about being aggressives, right? I remembered in the aftermath of her murder, Newark's queer community really pulled together to make their presence known and demand that they too deserve the same safety and security as anyone else. Outside of LGBTQIA events and rallies, I didn't get the same sense of urgency, passion, or will for political movement from the rest of the community. Dr. Jones says while everyone may have felt for Sakia's family and friends, getting behind a movement in her name or incorporating her story into an existing movement was met with stiff resistance. I see this correlation when I think about some of the research and writing that I've done on civil rights organizing and this very long history of anti-racist organizing and how there's often been this politics of respectability that has meant that 
very often, and especially within Black communities and Black organizing, the idea has been, look, if we're trying to advance civil rights for Black folks, we can't talk about women's issues right now, right? Or we can't talk about issues related to the gay community right now because that will pose some kind of threat um, to our ability to acquire rights. And so I wonder if sometimes there's this kind of distancing from all of these other again, issues related to gender or sexuality that might in some way feel politically damaging. If you're listening and wondering, respectability politics are a strategy used by marginalized communities to center the way they are perceived around clean-cut, normative values. The old pull-your-pants-up kind of mindset that can be used to alienate and ostracize the folks society pushes to the fringes of any community. Photographs of Sakia depict a kid with short cornrows and baggy t-shirts, jeans, and sneakers. If she had replaced her oversized tee with a form-fitting top or a stomach-revealing crop top, she would have looked like most of the 15-year-old kids in the aughts. Dr. Jones says Sakia's masculine gender presentation, identifying as a lesbian, and being out with her friends until 3 a.m., are all factors that kept her from being thought of as respectable. They also cost her her life. I think a lot of this all has to do with pervasive hegemonic masculinity, right? And this idea that for a lot of men, I know I'm painting with a broad brush. Of course, yes. Not all men, right? Um, But that hegemonic masculinity means that for a lot of men, in order to feel like quote unquote, real men, right? That their sense of masculinity is predicated on dominance. It's predicated in feeling in control of, and historically that has meant feeling in control of and dominant over women. And so in this particular case, when a woman says, not only am I not interested, right? Keep it moving. But that woman also says, not only am I not interested in you, I'm not interested in men at all. That that for some men is incredibly emasculating. And we have seen many, many court cases where men will even, or at least their lawyers, will use this as a kind of defense, right? That they, they felt so emasculated that they kind of lashed out um, in these violent ways, as if that's some kind of excuse um, for their behavior. But I think that these that a lot of men's sensibilities about their own manhood are wrapped up in this behavior. The night Sakia was murdered, she was returning home with a group of friends from a night out at Chelsea Piers. Two men approached them at a bus stop, trying to hit on one of the more feminine presenting girls in the group. When their advances were rebuked, the girls told the men they were gay. A fight broke out, and one of the men... Richard McCullough produced a knife. Sakia was stabbed, and while she bled out on the sidewalk, the girls flagged down a passing car to transport Sakia to the hospital, where she was ultimately pronounced dead. I think it has everything to do with power. I rarely give one-word answers, but in some ways I want to say it's power. I think that especially for marginalized people who may be disempowered, for example, through the system of white supremacy, might then seek other ways to reclaim power, right? 
Dr. Jones says, under a patriarchal system, marginalized men who have been victims of racialized violence or harassment can and have sought to reclaim their power by inflicting the same harassment and violence against someone they might deem beneath them. In this case, against um, a gender nonconforming lesbian, that this is another way for them to feel power and to acquire power, right? Because if other people are going to put me down, I'm going to find another way to lift myself up and make myself feel powerful. And so while obviously I don't agree with this behavior, I think that this quest and this desire for power motivates a lot of this behavior. While Dr. Jones makes some salient points about gender, sexuality, race, and culture that apply nationwide, I knew I had to speak to someone who knew what it was like existing in those intersections in Newark at the time. My name is Beatrice Simpkins, and I am the executive director of the Newark LGBTQ Community Center located in Newark, New Jersey. I've worked in Newark. I still work in Newark. uh, And I also worship in Newark because that's where my church, church is based at. And so Newark is my adopted second home. I was born and raised in Jersey City. But, you know, the focus of my work, the focus of my community service, uh, and then for some time, up until 2019, I, w- I was living in, in, in Newark, New Jersey. So I asked Beatrice what it was like for her being visibly out and gender nonconforming in these same spaces that proved fatal for Zakia years later. As a young person, I would say that Newark had its spaces for us way more than they do now. You know, we had the iconic Murphy's Tavern, which was on Edison Place. That's where a lot of us gathered and hung out. And we did feel safe at Murphy's because we felt like there was more of us than, than them kind of thing. And if anybody came in there to carry on, the whole bar would turn out. <laughs> so we felt like we were good. Um, now, did we experience and hear stories about people being harassed on the way home? Yes, we did. Uh, you know, especially trans, trans women being attacked or harassed. We sure did. Uh, We had our own buddy systems, right? We gave people rides home from the different parties that would be occurring. Um, So we, we, you know, we tried to protect ourselves, especially if we know the girls were going into a neighborhood or back home into a neighborhood where, you know, there's there's some risk involved. Uh, I sometimes I depending on how I was dressed, I would definitely be concerned about walking down the street with my girlfriend. Because I present as a masculine woman, right? So does Zakia. And so for me, that's always in the back of my mind. And I've had the experience on more than one occasion where a male has approached myself or approached my uh, the woman I was with to say something derogatory about either how I was dressed or the fact that she was with me, you know, or that it was about me trying to be a man, you know, Um And so you did have to be aware of that. You did have to be aware of that back then. Just this year, Gallup released a poll indicating more than half of Black women in the U.S. do not feel safe walking alone at night in the area they live. Compared to 75% of Black men who say they do feel safe and 73% of all American adults. 
According to Gallup, Black women overall face unique challenges beyond those experienced by Black Americans more broadly. Black women are also more likely than Black men to report having experiences of mistreatment due to their race and are less likely than Black men to have confidence they will receive fair, respectful treatment in interactions with law enforcement. Just like the night of Sakia's murder, when Valencia Bailey spent hours in the hospital having her every movement monitored by the Newark Police Department, as if she was a suspect in Sakia's killing. Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast only from NPR. Currently, on the corner of Broad and Market, there is nothing that would indicate a murder, a life lost, a galvanizing flashpoint for Newark's queer community ever took place. In fact, aside from her grave marker, the only public memorial dedicated to Sakia Gunn can be found along Newark's MacArthur Highway at the intersection with South Street. Tatiana Fazlalizadeh is a multimedia visual artist whose work centers the experiences of Black folks, women, and queer folks. She was one of several artists tapped by Newark Downtown Business Management, a nonprofit working to beautify downtown Newark, much like a chamber of commerce. She says she chose Sakia as her subject because she was so moved by her story. I don't, you know, often do murals um, or public art pieces that are um, memorializing a person who has passed. Fazla Lizadeh says her work usually focuses on the lived experiences of sexual harassment in public spaces. So much so that in 2012, she created a visual narrative street installation project called Stop Telling Women to Smile. And through interviewing different women from around the world about street harassment, she realized how quickly everyday harassment can turn to violence. The, you know, the, the sheer violence of it, um, that this person was a child, you know, 15 years old, um, living their lives and, um, you know, out with friends. Um, and that their life was, you know, brutally taken, violently taken because of, you know, someone's um, hate for them, their entitlement to their, uh, to what they wanted from Sakia and Sakia's friends. I found that, you know, universally, cis-hetero men think that they are entitled to to women, cis, trans, you know, different types of women, fems, um, 
entitled to them, entitled to their bodies, to their time, to their conversation. And this was across the board, you know, in the different countries that I've gone to, different cities across the, the U.S., you know, and, and of course, so many different factors play into how that entitlement shows up. She says it was the intersections Sakia lived at of Black, queer, gender nonconforming, and young that inspired her to choose Sakia as her mural subject, even though Fazaliza never met her. When people die and it, you know, and they're and they die in these very tragic ways. And their story sometimes can become a this big story that almost exceeds their life, you know. Um we forget that it was a life, that it was an actual person. Um, and in this case, you know, a very young person. Um, and so to take someone's, I mean, I always feel responsibility when I'm using someone's image. Fazalizadeh's mural, dedicated to Sakia, consists of six black and white images of Sakia from her eighth grade graduation portrait. Set against a red background, she intended for it to bring out the vibrancy of the life that was taken. Fazalizadeh always considers the site and location crucial aspects of her work because she factors in how race and gender affects a person's ability to navigate certain environments. But she did not choose the location for this piece, the side of some raised train tracks along Newark's MacArthur Highway. Still, Fazalizadeh feels it makes a point it's something about like putting somebody's face on the wall that is um, you can't deny it. And in this way, I wanted to like you can't deny this story. You can't deny that this person existed. And then you also can't deny the way that this person died and why this person died. And the style of portrait has meaning as well. I was thinking about repetition. Like I was just thinking about, I wanted to repeat this image over and over and over and over again, um, to say her name over and over and over again. Say her name! I think that our young black queer people who experience violence in this way um, and hate in this way um, are they're not being, they're not allowed to be free. They're not allowed to be who they truly are. Um, and I think that that is just really, really tragic. Um, and so to simply take their life and to take her life in that way, um, it just, it really hit me very, very deeply. Um, you know, because I feel like I know Sakia Gun, like, and I know plenty of Sakia Guns I have over my lifetime as a child, um, as an adult. I am not part of the queer community, but I continue to be amazed at how indifferent people can act towards queer lives, especially if they are Black or Brown. But what I do understand is the unique type of misogyny that Black women, regardless of orientation, face on a daily basis. I went back to a conversation I had with Dr. Reverend Horace Griffin, an Episcopal priest of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Atlanta. Dr. Griffin is openly gay, has a Ph.D. in Christian theology. He's taught at Fisk University and author of the book, Their Own Received Them Not, Lesbians and Gays in the Black Church. Heterosexual male privilege is at work that he should have the right 
to have sex with any woman he wants because he has been socialized in a culture as we talk about white privilege. Again, I often go to, to race references because if we understand it around race, we just take it over into the category of sexuality and it, it makes sense. He says the same way white privilege might allow a white person to feel a certain freedom to do whatever they want because of a societal position of power, that same invincible feeling often comes up for many cis heterosexual men. I should ha- not have, or any of my sexual desires, they should be met because I am privileged because I'm heterosexual. And how dare a woman would rebuff me? And so the becoming incensed that this young woman who I'm attracted to would deny me my right to have sex with her. And then to say that she is not interested in sex sexually at all to me. I, she's interested in a woman. So I cannot get there at all. So the rage that comes that, one, you have denied me personally, and that you are saying that you are preferring a woman over me as a man, and that totally turns on its head the social script that he's had all his life and the anger from a world that he knew and a privilege he was given by a homophobic culture that he should have the right to have his way with her. Again, Sakia's murderer, Richard McCullough, insisted he thought Sakia was a man, which brings us back to gender presentation. In the case of Sakia, she was very masculine presenting and, um, Being considered too masculine is already something that has been well-documented. A lot of black women in a white supremacist structure struggle with period. So to be masculine presenting might be off-putting to some people. Yes. You're going against the norm. You're going against the social script. Men act this way. Women act this way. And if you have deviated from that norm, then you are ostracized because you are not following the script that you've been given. And Beatrice Simpkins adds, traditionalist scripts can even show up in queer relationships and pairings. If you're like a male-centered lesbian, like Sakia was an aging aggressor, you, you, you feel a tremendous responsibility to want to protect your girlfriend, right? And so that whole chivalry thing kicks in, right? If somebody says something to me and my girlfriend, and I'm expected, you know, to be the man and, you know, challenge them. Simpkins makes it very clear she is by no means victim-blaming, just highlighting what is a common occurrence, especially among young queer couples, an occurrence she had to learn to navigate herself. I learned not to say anything unless I really needed to. Right. If somebody was actually getting in our space. But if somebody says something from a distance or, you know, you know, every now and then you'd have like a little, you know, quick kind of, you know, come back with this a little dig. This expectation. You got to stand up for your woman. You got to, you know. She says the repercussions for a young lesbian couple can be challenging for two people learning to navigate a relationship and push past the boundaries of traditional heterosexual roles. Now you got to deal with your girlfriend 
calling you a punk because she ain't saying anything. Because that happens. Right? That, that machismo, hyper-masculine, especially during this age of hip-hop, music, and imagery, and all of that, plays into all of that. And the risk that you take as the aggressive or the masculine-centered woman in trying to uh, protect you know, the honor of the young lady you might have on, you know, that's your partner or your date for that night or whatever. The most important part, Beatrice says, to keeping Sakia's memory alive, her story alive, is teaching the kids at the LGBTQIA Center about her, especially those whose lives closely reflect Sakia's. Because you can only be disposable if you are forgotten. Nobody else is out here telling this story. They're definitely not telling this story to young people. Next time on After Broad and Market, I'll explore my own culture clash while reporting on Sakia's story and the disconnect between the outside perception of Newark and the rich history of the people who call Brick City home. After Broad and Market was co-produced by the WNET Group's Chasing the Dream and LWC Studios. I'm Jenna Flanagan, the lead reporter, producer, and host. Aaron McIntyre is the executive producer. Daniel Greenberg is the executive in charge of production. Juleka Lantigua is the series editor. Paulina Velasco is the managing editor. Shant Alexander is the associate producer. Cindy Rodriguez and Chelsea Rugg are producers. Michelle Baker is an associate producer. Elizabeth Nakano mixed this episode. Kate Gallagher is the fact checker. Kojin Tashiro is lead sound designer. Cover art designed by Karen Brazell. Original mural art by Tatiana Vazlalizadeh. The legal consultants are Marta Castang and Matt Clark. For Chasing the Dream, Eugenia Harvey is the executive producer. Maria Stoyan is the senior producer. Catherine Carpenter is a producer, and Shannon Damiano is the production assistant. Audience engagement provided by Lindsay Horvitz. Major funding for Chasing the Dream is provided by the JPB Foundation with additional funding from Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III.